on today's episode of the Socially Distanced Podcast presented by the Glenbrook South Oracle. Co-editor-in-chief Gwen Skiles and I, I'm Tommy Marquardt, co-sports editor with the Oracle, had an amazing conversation with an ER doctor, Dr. Hala Akbarnia. She's a Glenbrook mom, and she talked about what it's like to be an ER doctor during this pandemic. And she has a specific experience that she uh, she talked about as well. So she made a Facebook post about a patient who she had. She nicknamed him Mr. C to protect his anonymity. And it went viral, so to say. It was covered by national media outlets. She did interviews with, uh, with national talk shows. She, uh, the LA Times, Los Angeles Times newspaper picked up her Facebook post, published it. So it was a really... Uh, outstanding moment and it was an amazing interview when she talked about it and she also had some great things to say about kids and teens during this pandemic about how they've missed key high school events key middle school events uh, and the mental health issues that can come from that and how to keep busy how to work through those uh, mental health problems that can result from this pandemic so amazing interview with Dr. Akbarnia I highly recommend you listen and I know I'm biased because I co-host the podcast but for real if you're gonna if you're gonna listen to me on anything, listen to this interview. So we will jump right into it on the count of three. One, two, three. Let's go. Welcome to the Socially Distance Podcast, presented by the Glenbrook South Oracle Podcast Network, the newly created Glenbrook South Oracle Podcast Network. May I add, I'm Tommy Marcourt, a sports editor with the Oracle, and my co-host today is... Gwen Skiles, co-editor-in-chief of the Oracle. And our guest today, we have a, a very special guest today. Uh, we have an ER doctor here, Dr. Hala Akbarnia, um, a, a Glenbrook mom as well. So Dr. Akbarnia, how are you doing today? How are you doing in general? I'm doing good, thank you so much for having me. I mean, thank you for being here. So we're just gonna you know, talk a little bit about the, the coronavirus pandemic, the, uh, I mean, being an ER doctor during the coronavirus pandemic, that's, I mean, you have way differing experiences from us and, and almost everyone listening to, uh, to this podcast. So, um, I mean, first question, just in, in terms of, uh, you know, like the workload of, of being a doctor during this stressful time, how are you holding up? I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. Um, it's definitely a different time for me right now. Being an ER doc in general is one of those jobs where it's never the same. Every day you go to work, you see something different from heart attacks to gunshot wounds to just the everyday sniffle that a kid might come in with to broken bones. And so every day your job is pretty exciting and different. And one of the reasons why I think I like it, I think a lot of us who go into it have a little bit of that adrenaline junkie um, as part of our personality and um, maybe a little bit of can't sit still and need to do something different every day and um, probably feeds into my my own little ADD that I have. Um, but it definitely is something that I love. I've always loved doing. I've never been afraid or worried to go to work, even though I think probably I would say that every shift when I go and I have a little bit of um, that rush because I just want to make sure I'm always on my toes and that I'm never um, missing something. Um, but this definitely has changed my perspective on medicine in general and life in general and um, working in environments that you don't always feel might be the safest for you. And um, 
And in this particular case, walking into the unknown, like almost like we talk about a lot of times emergency medicine is kind of like going to war because you're all a big team and you all have roles and you can't do it without the next person. And everybody's just as important as the next. And you do feel like you're oftentimes going into battle together and whether it's um, when someone comes in and you all have to kind of chip in um, or if it's basically someone who, you know, comes in, um, a kid who comes in that you all have to kind of, you know, power together to take care of. Um, but in this case, you're, you're almost alone too, because you come in as a team, there's not everybody there that you normally would have. So a lot of the students aren't there anymore. There's no medical students there. There are no nursing students there. Um, none of the people that help us out on a daily basis are there because everybody's been asked to stay home so they can stay safe. Um, and when you don't know what you're dealing with sometimes, especially in the beginning, it's a little bit scary because you are worried obviously for your own health, but what could you possibly be bringing home to your family and what could you be, um, what could you be doing maybe wrong even? Like, are you not treating the, the patients the way they're supposed to be? Do we not know enough about this disease, you know? So there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that even though that's part of my job, it's definitely not in this way. This is not quite how we anticipated it. So that's a long answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote a column that got a lot of attention about your time taking care of Mr. C, who was diagnosed with coronavirus. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I'm definitely not one who is has ever been involved in really writing or um, mm -hmm. never had a blog. I've never written articles about my job, um, but I uh, went to work one day and every day we've been preparing for this particular day. Um, mm -hmm. You have to prepare a lot because if you don't, you definitely uh, can hurt yourself and others around you. And so by preparation, by preparation, it means that you've been listening to everything that's been going on in all the different countries like Italy and um, China and even in the East and West Coast. And um, we've been preparing for this by uh, ramping up our equipment, by trying to get enough equipment for ourselves to protect ourselves, the PPE that everyone talks about with masks and gowns and gloves and um, and ventilators to make sure we have enough and the medications that we would need. Um, and you still can't anticipate shortages that you'll have. But anyhow, so for, for days and weeks, we've basically been just preparing and patients have been kind of trickling in and coming in. Knew they had it, but there's not a lot you can do for the ones that aren't that sick. You just basically have to send them home. And at that time, we didn't even really have enough tests to test people. So people weren't too happy because they would come in and they would want to be tested and we couldn't test them. And we would just say, you basically have it. Kind of like often we would tell people who had the flu that you've got the flu. You don't really need to test where we know you do. Um, but that particular day, it was, we got hit pretty hard. I had a patient, Mr. C, that came in that was really, really sick at the time. But right before that, one of my colleagues on the other side was um, with a really sick patient and he was intubating that patient, which is basically when you have to put a tube into their lungs to breathe for them because um, they can't breathe anymore on their own. And we were seeing a lot of other sick people that we knew probably had it. And, you know, you're completely 
protected because you want to make sure you don't get it. And he was different than everybody. He just was calm and uh, he just, he doesn't remember this because afterwards when I talked to him, he doesn't really remember saying these things, but he was telling us he was a teacher and that he was really grateful for everything we did. And he was just um, the voice that we all needed to kind of calm ourselves down a little bit too. So it was one of those moments where he was much sicker than I even anticipated. And about two or three times during the whole process, I, I nearly lost him. Uh, his heart went into a, a rhythm that almost was not life sustaining and he his oxygen dropped to a point where I just can't even believe that he made it through and he made it through and I think he just kind of grabbed everyone's heart that day and so I followed him I followed his progress and he was on a ventilator for about two weeks almost and then one day I saw that he had been removed and that he actually was talking and he seemed to be pretty normal. So I went up to visit him just to see, is it possible that he would even remember who I was in the midst of all that? But when you wear your equipment, you're basically wearing a, a big, huge hood and you're wearing masks and you have goggles on. And But I had a hood on so he could definitely just see my eyes. And when I was over him putting the tube in, the last thing I just saw him just looking at me like, and he said, I'm putting myself in your hands, Doc, essentially. And of course, that's really hard to hear when someone's telling you, like, you know, help me through this. And um, at, at that time, when I went to visit him, I thought he's not going to remember. But one of the first things he said was, I remember you. I remember your eyes. And I think to me, that was that was everything, because obviously you realize that you have this like human connection with people during their worst time. It's like the worst day of their lives and you're there trying to help them through it. So we talked for a while and he told me about his life and his life and how um, he was a teacher and uh, he taught at um, Nutria. He was actually the retired teacher there. And, um, and he taught special education there and he led a lot of trips and did Habitat for Humanity, and he's just a very special, special man. And um, and he talked about being alone, like his wife, basically for two weeks, was alone at home with no one because everyone had to stay away from her because they thought maybe she might have it, so she couldn't see her family. Um, and then um, I went home that night, and I had visited him. This maybe it was the second time. That night, I think I was just so emotional that I just wrote what it felt like, you know, the whole process. And then I came back to him the next day and I read it to him and there was a nurse in the room too. And, and all the three of us, I think at some point, we're all crying together. And he thought, yes, why don't we do that? Why don't we put this out there and see if, you know, it might help some people. Although I don't think he's on social media, so... I'm not sure if he realized what that meant if I put it on my Facebook page, what exactly that would mean if I made it public. And I've done it before. Nothing's really ever happened. But I think it was a story that people hadn't really heard yet. Um, they've been hearing a lot about doctors wanting, um, talking about not having enough PPE and not having enough equipment and um, not being adequately supported and this was different. This was someone who had made it through and made it. And I think people kind of at that moment needed that story. I didn't realize this. 
And the next thing I kept seeing, it just kind of shared, shared, shared. And then uh, by the next morning, I think it had to come up to like two or 3,000. And I thought, oh my God, I think I think the story went viral, as they say. <laughs> um, and then it just kind of kept going. I think it's it's been out there. Um, you know, the LA Times picked it up and then um, a bunch of other outlets and then at some point I, I decided I don't think I really want to do any actual live interviews with anyone so except with you guys um but but I that's kind of how that story took off I just think it was a story that everyone needed at that time I think part of the reason and I I read the column and I, it was it was very well written by the way but I think part of the reason it has stuck the story has stuck with so many people is because um I've had experiences in the ER before. I've had a lot of health uh, biomedical history, but I think it's difficult for people that haven't had those experiences to understand the empathy that being a medical professional requires. Um, So I think that's why it resonated with people. I think you're right. I think a lot of people don't actually realize that we can care as much because sometimes you may not have the time to, and you may be, um, especially in the emergency room, you, you might have just a few moments to spend with the patient. But I think that, um, you know, I, I taught residents as well, too. And one of the things that we would teach people is that you can't necessarily teach empathy, essentially, but you can teach um, the value of listening and sitting and being an ear and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And the difference between this disease right now is that people are alone. They don't have anybody else. They have just themselves in that emergency room, in that hospital the entire time. Not just if you come in for Corona, but if you're coming in for anything, you have no one. So um, unless you're a kid, you're allowed one parent essentially in most hospitals, Um, but that's it, Not, not both of them. Um, but if you're older and let's say you have a little dementia and you may not remember things, it's really hard to be that person. And, um, or if you're just sick and it's the worst day of your life and you just want someone else next to you, your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, you just can't have that, you know? Um, and I think that's the hard part. So a lot of us have just have taken on that role of not just being there um, healthcare provider, but their um, family too. And I think that for me, that makes it a little bit um, easier to to think, okay, they're in this by themselves, but if we can help them through it, then it makes it a little bit better. And it's not just talking to them. It's also making the phone calls to the families and talking to their siblings and loved ones and, you know, wives and husbands, because they're not there. So they're just sitting there waiting for that phone call just to get a little bit of information. And um, so it's really a, a unique, um, place in medicine that we've never been at. We've never had this before where you can't have anyone come into hospitals to visit. But. And it, yeah, and it's kind of crazy in, in just terms of social distancing where this has impacted all of us, where, you know, I, I, the only way I can talk to my grandparents is now over, uh, video chat and, you know, they're stuck in their homes, which is obviously for the best, but it's, yeah. uh, it's it's something we've never seen before in terms of being forced to stay home. It's yep. kind of you know the reverse of what like a, being a, a kid is. And in terms of social distancing, 
uh, for people that aren't social distancing right now because they don't think the disease will affect them or they don't think uh, it's the stakes are very high for them. Uh, what is at stake for the people that aren't social distancing right now? I think it's really hard to see what the effect of what you do today can do when you know when you don't see that effect for at least a few weeks. So if you choose to go out with your friends and and for kids it's it's harder because kids just don't get sick in the same way that adults do. Um, the kids tend to be the vectors. Basically, they pass on the right. Just like in life, you guys are super social and super, um, you know, want to hang out and give stuff to each other. Well, that's what you're doing. You're basically passing this on to people, um, you know, so it's a very altruistic thing you're doing, but it's definitely not what you want to do in, in this situation. So by you choosing to go hang out with your grandparents and let's say, um, let's say you, your, your parents go to the store and go to the grocery store and they do everything possible to to try not to get anything, but still maybe they, maybe someone still coughed or someone still, um, you touched something that maybe had it and then you bring it home and you choose that night to go see your grandparents while you're passing this on to them, even though you yourself may never have realized that you had it or you got sick from it. Not now, at least there will be a day where, where you'll be able to, to find out if you had it or not. But, um, but for now, it, getting the more vulnerable people sick, those are the ones that have the hardest time to pull through this. And also, um, surprisingly, we're seeing a lot of younger people um, get sick as well. And by younger, you guys, not your age, but in my, in my opinion, younger, like, you know, 50, <laughs> uh, 40, 50, 60, sometimes you see people in that age group who don't really have that many medical problems. And often a lot of them are people who are out there working. So they are maybe some people who may not have the luxury to be able to hunker down at home and they have to have their jobs or they're essential and they work in the stores or in our more, um, uh, some of our uh, population of patients that have been hit the hardest are some of our African-American um, population and our Hispanic population that might live in areas that not necessarily are um, the most affluent and, um, because of necessity, they have to be out there working and doing stuff and they end up getting sick and they bring it home to their families and then the entire family can get sick. So sometimes we've seen a mom and dad on ventilators while while the kids are at home without their parents right now. And, um, those are the really hard ones. And that's what our community can do. Um, and as a whole, your generation can do the best thing is what you're doing, you know, is nothing, basically staying home. And some people say, well, this doesn't really make sense because eventually we have to get out there. And if we're not sick now, eventually we'll get sick. But part of it is also um, the analogy of a Chinese um, restaurant, let's say, can take 3,000 um, orders a year, um, but it's spread out throughout the whole year. It's not all in one night. If you all decide to all go out at the same time and hang out and everybody gets sick at once, um, the hospitals can't handle all of those people coming in at once. And so basically you're spreading out the ability for hospitals to take care of you, um, the population, versus doing it all at once. 
which means that we can hopefully help more people. Um, the the prop and also what this does is it allows you to learn more about the disease and what things we can do to treat it. Now we have some options, whereas in the beginning we really didn't know what we were dealing with. We have some ability to know like what people are going to present with, and gets us closer to developing a vaccine, which is really the essential goal. Um, I know that for until there's a vaccine, I will have to wear a mask, gown, um, gloves, protection for every patient that I see that I think might be um, COVID and really anyone, because now a lot of people are presenting with other symptoms, but they still have the virus too, um, even this because they're carrying it now. Um, so I know until there's a vaccine, I have to protect myself that way. So I think that's the hard thing for people to, to realize is that um, staying, staying away means less people spreading it to people who might get sick and really get sick from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a question that's going through a lot of people's minds, especially teenagers, like I'm a senior, I won't get the typical graduation that most every other class has. There are questions about going to college in the fall. And I think a lot of people are just wondering, when is all of this going to be over? When will quarantine be lifted? When will life resume back to what it usually is? Um, How would you answer that? That's a really good question. And first of all, it sucks. It totally sucks to be um, a kid at any age during this because um, this is a huge part of your life, uh, six months of the year, a year, three months, whatever it is, um, is a, is a huge percentage of the life that you're, you've lived, whether you're five years old, 10 years old, or a senior or junior and, um, really anything. And I, and it's hard because like in our house, I feel horrible because obviously they know what I'm doing and, um, and I don't want to take anything away from the fact that, yes, my job sucks right now, too, in some ways. Um, but I know that my junior and my eighth grader, their lives have been kind of shifted quite a bit, too. Mm-hmm. And for seniors, I mean, for anybody, but really, I mean, you're, you're giving up a lot. You're giving up your prom, your graduation, your ceremonies, being with your friends, um, deciding that college announcing it to people, you know, all the social things that go on in this year, you're, you're, you're celebrating in different ways. And so, first of all, I think it's important that everyone knows that it's okay to feel sorry for yourself and feel bad about it, because there's no question that it just sucks. And so that's the first thing. But also, maybe then to then think about what you've gained from it. And partially, I think, it's important to think for people your age that you have an experience that no one has ever experienced before. And at some point you're going to sit down with your grandkids and talk about it and say, this is, you know, if I, I told my kids, I'm like, write a journal about your days. And initially my son was like, well, it's going to be a lot about it. Well, I played Xbox today. And then today I, I went outside and then came home and played Xbox. Like, well, more about your feelings about what this means to your life and how you think it affects it because things that you gain um well they now know how to clean the toilet and um the shower you know like things that they don't normally used to do or independence of things that 
you didn't normally think you would need that independence. The structure that you create for yourself in your e-learning and your school that you normally wouldn't have. It's, it's, it's kind of like being a college, you know, you have to figure out these things a little bit earlier than you anticipated. And just um, maybe you've learned a new skill that you didn't think you would, or a way to interview people in a way that you never thought you would, or stories that you're writing that, that you didn't think you would. You know, I think to give yourself credit too and think, Okay, it's okay to feel really bad, but also think about the gains that you're that you're you're gaining, and that everybody really is in it together. So you're struggling to figure out how you're going to handle college next year, but so is every other senior in this country, you know. And so the colleges have to come up with independent ways of doing things, and in a way, it's kind of good for us all to to kind of put aside what we are used to and be uncomfortable for a little bit. And actually feel okay to be uncomfortable because being uncomfortable actually makes you grow in the same way that failing makes you grow. Like if when you fail, that's when you really learn the most. Um, I mean, I can tell you that my whole career has been based on one failure after another. Um, that may sound bad, but <laughs> I'm actually a really good doctor. But, but it's one thing after another that got me to the next phase of my life and made you more resilient and made you stronger and made you a better um, physician in the end, you know? Um, so I think to give yourself that um, is, is important. But yeah, to tell people when it's all going to be normal again, I honestly don't think it's ever going to be quite the same. And not that it's every day you're going to be out there doing stuff, but I think it's going to be a gradual integration back into the way life kind of was. Um, but with some modifications. I think that um, the initial phase, I think once everybody realizes that protesting out there and saying, I want my freedom and this is my life, that kind of has to change because you're not just playing with your own life. You're playing with everybody. So by you choosing to go out there and say, I want to get back into society now without a mask, you're doing it my way. You're walking in the grocery store and putting that poor person who's risking their time to give you your food, and they may not want to be there, you're putting them at risk, and then they're going to take that back to their family. So eventually, we'll probably be integrating back into, you know, hair salons, but with masks and with gloves and more, more distancing. And I think schools are going to have to do the same. I think many schools are talking about um, creative ways of getting people to come back in, whether it's um, creating a group of um, like one group of uh, kids who basically kind of go through the whole day together so that they're not going all over the place. Those are some options that people are talking about or, or you know, dividing kids into two groups where half the kids come one day, the other half comes the other. I mean, there's, there's some things that eventually, um, or maybe people wearing masks and getting their temperatures checked when they come into school. And um, I mean, your generation has figured out how to handle really difficult things. Like, isn't it great that there's been no school shooting this entire for a month and two decades. It's the first time we've had no school shooting, but maybe we don't have to be so drastic by having everybody stay home for that not to happen. Same kind of thing for going back to school. It'll, that will be a big um, task for the Board of Education to come up with ways to get you guys back there in the fall to be able to do this. Um, 
And many colleges I've, I've seen have already said, we're going to figure out, we will have classes in the fall. We will just have to be creative in how we do it. And I think that um, it gives them a little bit of time. You know, your summer plans might not be quite what you thought they would be this summer, mm-hmm. but you'll start getting creative. Both questions answered. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the things, and I've said this on previous podcasts, so I'm sorry if I'm getting repetitive, but one of the things that really struck me about this whole thing is how quickly it escalated, because I know um, that like the Tuesday before school was canceled, we were at a playoff basketball game with a packed student section. And then three or two days later, school was canceled for indefinitely. So uh, this is kind of a two-part question because, uh, you know, I mentioned the basketball example because I'm a big sports fan. I know there's a lot of big sports fans. One of my favorite events of the year is March Madness, and that got canceled. So this mm-hmm. is a two-part question, um, and they're not really related parts, but I'm still going to ask them at the same time. But number okay. one, um, wait, did you, as like a doctor, know that this was going to be as big as it was before the rest of us kind of realized it? And then number two, to all the people that, you know, have had their main – things that they go to when they're like feeling down or whatever, like sports to cheer them up and they don't have that anymore. Uh, what would you say to them in terms of, you know, I mean, any activities you suggest to pass the time? So both are really good questions. And I, um, I do totally, it's almost like a movie when you see something is about to happen and you're yelling at people and trying to tell them, Hey, watch out, watch out, but no one can really hear you. That is kind of how a lot of us felt in the emergency room. We could see it coming because of social media. We have um, a lot of us are on um, uh, basically groups that are uh, like I'm on a group of, I don't know, 40,000 emergency docs all around the world. So we were seeing it happen in other countries and couldn't believe it. And part of us, uh, you know, you knew it was going to come because there's no way you can contain something like that. We've been through this before. We've been through it through um, SARS. We've been through it with Ebola. We, in 1918, essentially we're reliving that with the Spanish flu. Um, and so we, we've prepared for things like this before, but we've never seen something as almost contagious as this um, spreading as fast as it was and in people that weren't even showing symptoms. I think that was the scariest part. So slowly, you know, towards the end of February, when we started noticing like, okay, big group gatherings, people started having some colds. We started seeing some people coming through um, when we knew, because in Chicago, we got hit on the second wave of it. You know, we already saw what was happening out in Seattle and the, you know, the cruise ships and what was going on in New York. And a lot of that was stuff that probably you guys weren't in tune with as much because why would you be? You're not sitting here, you know, monitoring. It's not like you're looking for doomsday, you know, in the middle of a basketball game. But that was kind of, we we had this feeling this was going to happen. And we started basically pushing our hospitals to start pushing protocols and um, social distancing and, and, um, and trying to conserve our masks and our equipment. But honestly, it was difficult to do there too, because a lot of people that you deal with in a hospital are administrative uh, people. And a lot of people who make decisions are people who aren't doctors or physicians or healthcare people. So to try to push them to make those decisions sooner than later um, was very frustrating too. So 
So I don't feel, I feel like as a country, we moved a little too slow. Um, and probably if we had been about seven to 10 days earlier, especially in New York, thousands of people would have um, probably lived, you know, who didn't because they got hit hard because of their density and also how much travel comes through there. And it just was a little late. But at the same time, if we um, didn't do what they did there, then it would, the numbers would be a lot higher. So I think in some ways, um, it's pretty impressive how a lot of the governors and how a lot of the um, states basically did rally, especially in big places like Chicago, New York, um, to kind of get people away and, um, you know, away from each other. It's pretty impressive if you think about those cities, how all of a sudden these bustling cities have no one walking the streets. It's, it's, it's one of those things where for years it'll, it'll blow my mind just seeing those pictures. That's the first part of your question, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the second part, I think that you are right. You're, your daily activity, the things that make you feel good about yourself and be with your friends have to be um, filled with something. So I think you need to every single day do something that is social. So whether it's FaceTiming someone, like making a list of somebody that you talk to every single day or um, have communications with, that's one thing. Um, I think keeping somewhat of a schedule is important. So maybe like when you wake up, you actually force yourself to get out of your pajamas, make your bed, um, and not like at two in the afternoon, finally making that decision. And at some point, get outside and do some kind of an exercise because that exercise is what really stimulates your brain and your body to, to produce those uh, hormones that you need to kind of stay um, to stay happy. And then the other part of your brain that probably needs stimulation in a positive way is your amygdala, which is like the part of your limbic system, which is basically in your brain that um, handles emotions. So it can be emotions that are pleasure or pain, depression, um, anxiety. So somehow you have to stimulate the positive parts of your amygdala. And to do that, uh, they found that in a crisis situation, which is what we're in, you tend to first focus on me, like, oh my gosh, what's happening to me and, and my life. And that's important because you have to do that. But the best way to help yourself is by helping other people. So somehow or another, finding a way to um, give to others. So whether it's, you know, finding the people in your community that you feel like you want to be helping um, whether it's, you know, collecting food, um, you know, I, I've seen people in your school, um, putting blue ribbons on trees and collecting food, um, to take to the pantries that are really, really hurting or, um, writing letters to senior citizens in their homes that they can't, um, they can't see anyone or somehow or another finding ways to volunteer online. There's actually a ton of, uh, online volunteering opportunities that are out there right now. Which is, which is interesting because you just never really thought that that would be how one would connect with people. But by somehow doing something for someone else, you're, you're instigating that feeling of pleasure in your brain, which then helps you from going into that depression or that anxiety mode, which I'm sure at, at all points um, you feel. I had it. I, I know in the first few weeks of this, when I 
thought I knew what was going to happen even more than the general population did. My heart rate never was below 100. It just was beating and I couldn't sleep well at night. And, you know, I still have those feelings sometimes, but it's a little bit different now. You're just kind of in a different mode. But I think that with kids, that's important to make sure that somehow you're helping someone else. It could be even in your own home. It doesn't have to be this huge, big project. It can just be your neighbors or, or just, you know, socially distant helping. But at home, like there's a ton you can do, right, to, to kind of help, help out in some way. Um, so I think that's, that's super important to do. Um, and then obviously just taking care of yourself somehow, like figuring out a whole month has gone by sometimes and not to be disappointed if you don't, because you can look back and think, what did I do in April? Like April just went by and what did I really do? And you might think, I didn't really think I did much, but, and then forgive yourself for that and then move on. Because if you, if you sit here and really think about all the things you didn't do, um, you're going to be pretty upset too, because your brain and your body is kind of on hold right now. You keep thinking this is just temporary. It's going to change back into my normal life and it will. So it's hard for the body to just all of a sudden make this your new normal for a while. Um, but what's also important is really, really checking in on your friends, even the ones that you feel like you haven't talked to, um, because you might be okay at home. You might have a very good home situation, but much of um, what what we're not seeing in the emergency room right now are things like um, kids who might have come in before for child abuse or for depression or anxiety or things that maybe they would go to school and a friend would pick up on something and tell the counselor and then they would end up getting help. So checking in on those friends that you sometimes might think are the quiet ones or the ones that don't always um, talk, you know, their feelings out is probably really important right now because you want to be able to know if someone needs help and then to be able to reach out to your counselors because they're all available, um, just not in the same way. But they they want to hear if you hear things because you guys are their source. And Gwen, I don't know if you have anything else. Do you? No, I think that was great. All right. Uh, Good. Dr. Akbarna, do you have anything else you want to say? No, I just want you guys to all take care of each other. I think that's the most important thing for me. I I, um, I wish there was a way we can all just kind of give each other huge hugs, and I can't wait to do that. And I mean, honestly, I can't wait to do that with my own kids. I have been um, kind of separate from them in some ways. You know, I, I live here, I'm with them, but we don't, I'm not as close with them. When I come home, I basically take everything off in the garage. I go straight to the shower. I like decontaminate in, in my way and then I feel better. But, um, but so much of us fear that, you know, you're passing things on that for me, and actually a lot of my colleagues have lived separate from their kids. So that's another huge stressor for them, not being in the same house because they need childcare. And thankfully my kids are old enough that they can figure things out on their own. But I just, can't wait to get to a point where we're all super appreciative of who we have in our lives and taking care of each other and really reconnecting in ways that we all miss. That's, that's, uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. All right. Thank you so much for this. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing uh, to fight the coronavirus, you know, putting your safety on the line and all that. I mean, it's, it cannot be understated. 
Thank you so much. You guys, uh, you guys are doing really important work too. And I'm really proud to be connected to Glenbrook and to, to see this coming from there. So nice yeah. job. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Good luck and, to you, Gwen, this year. Oh, thanks very much. Yes. And uh, this has been the Socially Distanced Podcast presented by the Glenbrook South Oracle Podcast Network. Thanks again, Dr. Akbarnia. Uh, stay safe. Um, and Gwen, thank you for uh, for co-hosting with me today. So everyone out there, socially distanced, stay safe, and uh, catch you guys later. This was the Socially Distanced Podcast presented by the Glenbrook South Oracle Podcast Network.